0: what we're doing uh, we're a little bit behind right now in our, in our kind of agenda for the year I usually spend the month of January when I get back from my study break talking about some vision issues I think January is a great time for us to talk about where we're going as a church and what God has for us as we forge ahead in this year being 2009 And so we're still going to do that. We started a mini-series last week of messages talking about our second vision initiative, that of evangelism, and we're taking a look at Luke 15. And we've called it Search and Rescue, which is obvious on your bulletin. And uh, we're going to do that, continue that this week and then cap that off next week. And then uh, I'll be telling you next week where we're going to be going from there. So um, even though it's February 1st, we're still kind of, in my mind, looking at kind of the year ahead and what God has for us and how he might want to use each of us in advancing his kingdom, okay? So to get you thinking about Luke 15, because that's what we're in right now and it's such an awesome chapter, uh, we put together a little video bump for you to just kind of get you to think about this whole idea of searching and finding that Jesus is talking about here. So look up on the screen and then I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. Ricky, time to come in! Let's pray. Father, there is not one of us here this morning who can't relate to the idea of of having something valuable to us, whether as a kid it's a matchbox car or as we get older some other things that uh, we've lost and then went on an all-out search only to find and experience the joy. And God, that's the simple message that you've given us, but on a much more profound level in Luke chapter 15, this idea that you have lost people, that uh, you desire to bring back Into a right relationship with you. Back meaning that in the Garden of Eden, we had a right relationship with you, and all of humanity lost that. And now you're on an all out search to bring back those you have chosen back into a right relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that as we talk about these stories that Jesus tells, uh, that we might understand them rightly, that we'd apply them diligently, Lord, to our lives, and that your goodness and your grace uh, would be evident as we uh, plumb the depths of your word. And so give us wisdom now, and uh, we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, i got to tell you, folks, it would not be an overstatement to say that one of the most challenging, if not paradigm-shifting teachings of Jesus, especially for church-going people like you and I, out of all the things that Jesus taught is found in Luke chapter 15. It's true, because this chapter that we're looking at here, Jesus pulls out all the stops, he pulls no punches in communicating to you and me how God both feels as well as acts toward those who are not yet in his kingdom, toward those who are lost. And so don't miss sight of what we started last week when we talked about kind of the setting or the scenario of Luke chapter 15. It's really important that we understand this because it's one of the most unique scenarios in all the New Testament. I mean, you might remember that the whole chapter begins by telling us that together, in the exact same room, are the elite religious leaders of Jesus' day, whom they labeled the Pharisees and the Sadducees, kind of like pastors today, but then also the top immoral renegades of Jesus' day, all in the same room, who they call the tax collectors and the sinners. And so just picture that. you got two groups that hardly ever get together, two groups that are never really together in culture, all in the same setting, same place, same room, listening to Jesus. And so in a very real way, catch this, it would be like having Billy Graham, and then Howard Stern, and then James Dobson, and then Mick Jagger, all in the same room, listening to Jesus. I mean, can you almost picture something like that? You'd go, well, that's weird. And because of this, and because neither group really understood what Jesus was trying to do here, I mean, the religious leaders were all ticked that he was hanging out with Howard Stern and Mick Jagger, and the tax collectors had no idea why Jesus was hanging out with them. It's in this setting that Jesus decides to tell three simple but very revealing stories in hopes that people might begin to get and understand what God the Father is up to on planet Earth, as well as what our lives can purposefully be about as we follow Him. And though these three stories, as we will see over the next few weeks, are unique each in their own way, I mean, the one we saw last week is different from the one that we're going to see this week, they do, however, carry with them three similar themes that we don't want to miss. And so by way of review, look up here on the screen, here are the three themes that all three of these stories have in common that kind of make up the tapestry of what God is trying to communicate in Luke chapter 15. And the first theme is that something of great value is lost. Something of great value is lost. So last week it was a sheep, this week it's going to be a coin, next week it'll be a lost son, but make no mistake, it's just simply something of great value is lost. And obviously what God is getting at here is that human beings who are made in God's image and massively loved by him are lost. They're lost from birth, not in right relationship with God, and they need to be found. And so that brings us to the second theme, and that is that there's an all-out search then for what is lost. In all three stories, you're going to see that, whether it's searching for the lost runaway sheep or the lost coin or the lost son, there's an all-out search for what is lost. So God obviously is constantly seeking and searching for those who are going to take him up on his offer of eternal life with him for those who will trust and follow his son Jesus Christ. And then the third theme that we get in these three stories is that then there's a great celebration when what is lost is found. This is so cool. Like all heaven rejoices more so over than anything else that happens on earth when a lost person is found by God and comes home. Three themes repeated in three stories that Jesus tells to kind of the Pat Robertsons as well as the Donald Trumps of his generation. And we began exploring these themes last week. And we looked at the first of Jesus' three stories here, that of the lost sheep. And today we get to the second story. And interestingly, it's going to have nothing to do with a lost sheep or as we're going to see next week, a lost son, but a lost coin. And so I want to read the shortest of Jesus' three stories here to you right now, to Luke chapter 15. And so if you brought a Bible, turn to there now, because we're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we've provided Bibles in the pews in front of you, as well as we'll put the scripture here up on the screen. So listen to what Jesus says, beginning in verse 8 of Luke 15, this great story. He says, what woman?" If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, folks, when you first read this story, I'd say your initial reaction is, well, Kind of real similar to the first story we looked at, Jamie, right? I mean, kind of a lost coin, similar to a lost sheep, seems to be saying kind of the same thing. I mean, those three themes of something being lost and there being a diligent search and then a great celebration is all there. Yet I would submit to you that when you look closely at this story before us here today, there's a, a subtle shift in emphasis, a, a subtle twist that Jesus gives us here that if you're not careful, you might miss. In other words, there's a different twist to this story that Jesus tells us here that you need to look closely for, and when you see it, it starts to change the way that we start to understand Luke chapter 15. And this twist has everything to do with the main character of Jesus' second story here as well as the nature of that which has now become lost. Because you see, folks, what some Bible experts on the Bible point out here is that what is lost here, now think about this, is not a sheep Or as we're going to see in our next story, a human being. But what is lost here is a coin. And as we all know, coins by their very nature are inanimate objects having no will or personality. And so unlike sheep and sons that are lost because they ran away or because they strayed, coins have no choice. Think about it. They're lost because somebody lost them. That's what Bible experts point out here. And this is confirmed to us, by the way, in verse 9 of Luke 15 here. where I don't know if you caught it or not, but the woman who finds her missing coin says, and I quote, which I had lost. Did you pick up on that there? She says, I'm the one who lost the coin here. And so you have a coin which can't lose lose itself, and you have a woman who confesses to being the one who lost it. And so what commentators rightly argue is that the main character here then can't really be God. This woman can't be God here. So unlike the very first story we looked at, where the main character, the shepherd, obviously is God here, what they point out is that the woman here probably is not God in Jesus' story here, because it would make God culpable for being the one who lost something. And so they posit that the woman here must represent someone or something else other than God, and it's here where the twist comes into play. Because what they suggest is that the woman here most likely represents, now get this, the church, us you and me, who are called to not just join God's heart when it comes to how we view the world around us, but actually become a part of the rescue efforts to bring lost people back to God. If you're not convinced, listen to how Alfred Plummer, a well-respected Bible expert from the last century and a professor at Trinity College in Oxford, England, when he was alive, says it in his commentary. Look up here on the screen. This is kind of amazing. He says the main points of difference between this and the preceding parable are the changes from a man to a woman and from a sheep which could stray on its own accord and feel the evil consequences to a coin which could do neither. He says from this it follows then that the woman can blame herself for the loss of the coin which the man obviously does does not with regard to the sheep. Hence we may infer that the woman represents the church rather than God if she represents anything at all. And so do you see, if we're reading this right, folks, this now brings us, you and me, the church, into the equation here as being a part of the search and rescue process that God is all about. It brings us into God's primary plan for a fallen world, namely to become a part of the search and rescue process, and now take some responsibility as well as engage actively in this search and rescue that God is all about. In other words, we're the woman who's called to sweep and search the house to light a lamp, as we're going to see, and become part of the search and rescue that God is about. And I would submit to you that once you get this twist, it changes everything. Because what it does is poignantly shift the ownership and responsibility for the search and rescue of lost person from God alone to now include all those who claim to be followers of him through his son, Jesus And now, it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, in the first story, it's just God going after the lost sheep. But in the second story, God now includes us, the church, as part of his plan for reaching lost people. And so if we're right on this, notice of me then no less than three profound implications of this amazing twist found right here in the words of Jesus in this second story that now changed the focus from just God in the first person singular to we in the first person plural. First, notice with me that this now implies that we have lost friends who need to be found. You and me have lost friends who need to be found. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 8. It says, or what woman, again, us, the church, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one? And so the simple analogy is, is that this woman has 10 coins that are valuable to her and she has lost one and that now means something. And so could it be that you and I have valuable people in our lives that God places a lot of redemptive potential in, and for the ones that are lost, they matter greatly to him. You know, it's fascinating. When you start to understand this parable in its original New Testament setting, we have no idea why these ten silver coins were so valuable to this woman. I mean, why ten and why silver and all this other stuff outside of the obvious fact that it was, it was money. And some argue that maybe it was an inheritance. Other commentators argue that maybe it was a dowry. You know, part of receiving something for for giving away her son in marriage or something. We don't know. But all we do know, and this is the point that Jesus is trying to make, is that these coins, for whatever reason, were very valuable to her, and losing just one rocked her entire world. And so the point is clear to you and me, that we have close friends and family members and co-workers, and maybe we have ten. I mean, if you're lucky, you got ten people in your life that you really care about, and that care about you. And though some, if not many of them, might share your Christian worldview, Jesus's point is this, is that if even just one is lost and isn't walking with God through a relationship with Christ, then in God's eyes, it's a big deal. And it's worthy of your attention and energy as well. And further realize, folks, not just your attention, what's so cool about this woman representing us, the church, is that we're all in this together. In other words, it's worthy of our attention and energy. All of us, collectively, one woman, whole church. And so if each of us has 10 friends with one of them lost, then by implication, we should care about each other's lost friends and do all we can, as we're going to see in a minute, to band together as the church to help each other find those valuable lost ones. Or really, to put it more clearly, to help God find those lost ones, because as we're going to see, it's really up to him. He just includes us in the process. But don't miss that we're all in this together. We're all called to sweep the house. And by the way, other parts of the scriptures so confirm this to us. I mean, think about what you know of the scriptures. We're his body, right? His hands, his feet. We're his mouthpiece, heralding the gospel. I mean, God over and over again in the New Testament tells us that we are the church. And we are the ones that he wants to use to carry out his mission on planet Earth. Jesus is just telling us the same thing here in parable form. And so once you get this, once you get that we're that woman sweeping the house here as coming a part of God's search and rescue process, the only question becomes, how? I mean, on a very practical level, what are we to do? I mean, how is it that we're supposed to sweep in this kind of corollary parallel way here? How do we individually and collectively reach lost friends? How does God want us to accomplish this? And what's so cool about plumbing the depths of this parable, folks, is that Jesus goes on in this parable here to give us an overriding principle as well as some specific detail on how we're actually to do this. And it's point two on your outline, and look up here on the screen, and that is that we do this by becoming or joining God's search for those who are seeking him. We must join God's search for those seeking him. And so how do we become a part of the search and rescue process? Well, as we're going to see here in a minute, we pick up our broom, we take our lamp, and we start searching and see how God might want to use us. Look at verse 8 again. This is actually very fascinating. Look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 8 here. I love this. He says, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not, and I get this, light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Focus on those three phrases there. Light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully. I remember reading this years ago when I was doing an in-depth study of this parable, and I thought to myself, really what's going on here is Jesus talking about multiple tools mounting a progressively intensifying search, right? And that's what he's describing here. Multiple tools mounting a progressively intensifying intensifying search i mean latch on to that and notice that it all begins by lighting a lamp the woman if she's going to find the lost coin lights a lamp so i borrowed this from a friend of mine this week it's an old oil lamp Uh, probably obviously not from jesus's day but at least akin to the kind of lamp that they would have had back before the days of electricity and many of you know how these work. There's, there's oil in here, and there's a wick that sucks up the oil. And then you, you light the wick here, and it becomes a, kind of a long-standing lamp before the days of powerful flashlights and electricity and things like that. And what you need to know is that in the New Testament, for most middle-class homes, they didn't have a lot of windows because that would be kind of a luxury back then. And so to have any light inside of your house, you had to light a couple of these lamps and they obviously didn't throw that much light, but enough to be able to kind of get around. And so picture this lady lighting a lamp in her home, maybe a lamp similar to this, and having a little bit of glow and her starting to search for that lost coin. And so she looks on a table or maybe on the dresser or maybe in the drawers or on the floors or in the hallway using this lamp for light. And yet realizing that an oil lamp can only throw so much light and that she can't cover the whole house, she then opts for a second tool in her arsenal, and that's a broom, right? A broom. And this is kind of a modern day corn husk broom, but probably pretty similar to brooms that they would have back then. And so this lady grabs her broom, and the idea behind this is that she would use this broom to search in places that the light wouldn't shine, right? So picture that dark and dusty corners, under tables and dressers, under the bed, atop cabinets. I mean, anywhere that a broom could reach where she couldn't get light, she was using this to sort of search and feel for that lost coin. Multiple tools, a progressively intensifying search. And then still not finding her lost coin, Jesus adds a third element here when he says that she then searches carefully. Now this is very interesting folks. This phrase in the original language literally means to diligently seek something. It carries with it the idea that at this point the woman turns up the heat on an already hot search and rescue to find her lost coin. And so the picture that Jesus wants us to have here is that the woman kind of sets her lamp down, sets her her broom aside. And so it's okay. I haven't found it yet. It's time to roll up my sleeves because when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? And she gets down on her hands and her knees and she scours the place. She gets on chairs and looks atop cabinets. She checks the outhouse. She looks all throughout the foundation of the house and, and looks anywhere and everywhere she could think. And she doesn't stop until she finds the lost coin. That's the picture that Jesus gives us here. An ever-increasing, intensifying search in which she is diligently searching here. And folks, what I would submit to you is that contained in this progressively intensifying search where we see this woman using multiple tools, a lamp and a broom and a diligent search, is a call for each of us, individually and collectively, to engage in a similar, multi-tiered search that progressively journeys with those we love until god finds them that you and i begin an intentional relational journey with our lost loved ones around us and using the tools we'll see what i mean by that in a moment at our disposal to journey with them on a relational and spiritual level until god finds them i mean god is the one who's going to find them we learned that in the first and the third parable here but the reality is is that we get to be a part of that search. We get to be used by Him. And Jesus shows us this in this progressive, intensifying search. We get to become like the woman and be used by God to find lost people. So what am I talking about here? I want to show you what I mean. Look up here on the screen. And I want you to notice how I think there's some parallels here between the search that this woman is on that progressively intensifies using multiple tools and a search that you and I can be a part of in relationships around us. And notice that it begins by each of us having and developing what I call redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships. You know, the kind of relationships in which we have lost loved ones around us, family, friends, coworkers and because we know that they matter to God, And because in relationship they are valuable to us, we we put some massive redemptive potential, a lot of redemptive potential in these relationships. In other words, you want to see these people found. You want to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ and find the same joy and the purpose, the streams of living water that you now have. And so as a result of this, like the missing coin, you prioritize these people. With your love and your time and your energy pouring into them relationally and spiritually. In other words, don't miss. You begin a redemptive journey with a lost person. And the only catch here, folks, is that what studies have shown is that for many people that become Christians, especially in America, now tell me if this isn't true, it's so tempting over time to only develop relationships with those that already think like you. Amen? I mean, tell me if you've been tempted like that. I have. Now, as you can see in a minute, that's kind of safer. And those are the people that agree with you. And so it's just natural that over time you kind of fall out of these redemptive relationships and enter into only relationships with those who are already convinced, like you. And yet, if all of us do that, then we're never going to become like the woman here. The whole thing begins by us prioritizing redemptive relationships with those that are valuable to us in our sphere of influence our friends, our family members, coworkers, service providers, neighbors, people that God places in our path that we can develop a redemptive relationship with. And then at some point, as you journey with them, you must use a second tool if they're ever going to be found by God, and it's this, and that is that at some point you share a verbal witness with them. Amen? In other words, you tell them about Jesus and help them understand the gospel. In other words, you help them understand who Jesus is and why he has a call on your life. And let's face it, this is a big step, even a scary step for some of us, but so incredibly necessary. As Paul the Apostle said, if nobody ever tells them, how are they going to hear? And how are they going to hear if somebody in their sphere of influence who loves them doesn't tell them about the Lord, doesn't tell them about how to establish a relationship with Christ? And you know, I've been a pastor now for, for 20 plus years, and I got to tell you, I, I know what keeps many of us from doing this. Tell me this isn't true. And that is that there are two fears that keep many of us from sharing a verbal witness, even in the redemptive relationships we have right now. The first fear is the fear that we're going to mess it up, right? Give me a head now with that one. A fear that you're going to mess it up. That you're not going to share your faith like, like Wayne Grudem would. Right? Or like Daryl Del would, Wood or Jamie Rasmussen or some of the other theologically trained people. You're going to mess up the sharing of the gospel. And then the second fear that kind of is on the coattails of that, and maybe even more real for you, is a fear of rejection, right? I mean, the relationship's going okay right now. They know you're a Christian. They know you're kind of different. But, hey, you know, no love lost right now. But if you share your faith with them and share about Jesus, then that might make it kind of awkward, right? And we might lose the relationship. And so because of these two fears, fear that we're going to mess up, fear of rejection, I find that a lot of Christians, they shy away from the second tool that we have of sharing a verbal witness. And that's sad. Because let me free you up here with something that might help tremendously here. And I learned this years ago, and it's freed me up so tremendously. And that's simply this, that you don't need to fear messing it up. Because guess what? All God wants you to really share is the Jesus that you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory, he's not asking you to be Wayne Grudem or Lee Strobel or Daryl Del Hussein or Jamie Rasmussen or anything like that. He's asking you to be you and to share the Jesus that you know. And in the hands of God, because this is really his deal, not yours, this is him finding lost people, not you. You're just a part of the process. He's going to use you in the process as you. And so just share the Jesus that you know with people. And I'll never forget the first time I learned this. I mean, it was just life-altering. I've been a Christian by about 24 hours, way back in 1982. As I've told many of you before, I had a pretty radical conversion to Christ, kind of Paul on the road to Damascus going this way, and God kind of zapped me and brought me this way. And I was heading back to college in my freshman year of college, and and, and I got to tell you, when I first became a Christian, I knew nothing about the gospel. I mean, nothing. I didn't know substitutionary atonement, I didn't know who Paul the Apostle was. I thought Jesus wrote the whole New Testament. I mean, I was clearly Bible stupid, but just really excited about this newfound relationship with Christ. Because I knew he died on a cross, and I knew he forgave me for my sins. And that was enough, and I knew that God had now entered my life. And so not knowing anything about the gospel early, not knowing anything about all the theological intricacies I know now, not knowing the four spiritual laws or the bridge or any of these other methods of sharing my faith, within 24 hours of becoming a Christian, you know what I did? Before I went back to college, I took my best friend out to Denny's because I wanted to share with him about this Jesus that I had found. And I'll never forget, 1982, sitting there in Denny's in a Cleveland, sharing with my best friend about this Jesus that had now come in my life for about two hours on end. And you know what he kept saying to me? I need Jesus too. I need Jesus too. And I look back on that, and I go, my gosh! If a dumb, rebellious, but now turned to God, 18-year-old kid can share the gospel effectively with another kid who needs to come to Christ, then surely you can have some success with this as well. Amen? Amen? I mean, let's just put this in perspective. God used me back then. He's used me over the years. He wants to use you too. He's not asking you to be a Rhodes Scholar. He's asking you to share what you know about Jesus with those around you. Now, don't get me wrong. We do evangelism training here. We're going to do more evangelism training this year. We're kind of revamping that, and we're going to retool that. And the good news is, is we're going to share with you how to share your faith in a more natural way with those around you and give you some tools that will help. But the reality is is that whether you go through any of that or not, whether you learn how to share the bridge or not, or the spiritual laws or not, or whatever, God still wants to use you. He's been using people for 2,000 years to share Jesus with those around them. Now, So, you develop a redemptive relationship, you share a verbal witness. Now now here's the deal, and tell me if this isn't true. If you've ever tried this before, um, what happens is, is not usually what you hope would happen, amen? In other words, what what happens most of the times when you share your faith for the very first time with those around you, is that they don't immediately go, wow, you're kidding. I never knew that. Jesus came for me? I mean, where do I sign? How do I sign up for this? How do I accept Christ? That's usually not the response that people have, Right? I mean, usually your response, especially in America, is, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, I'm, I grew up Catholic, or I grew up this, or whatever, and you're talking about this personal relationship with Jesus, and, 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 and repentance, and turning to Him, and walking with Him, and giving your life to Him, and, and, and they basically say what? i got to think about that, right? And, and, and at best, you hope that they're going to be willing to journey with you in this redemptive relationship. And here's what's so cool, is that you have a third tool in your arsenal, and you know what that is? Is you invite them to church. Or you invite them to some kind of non-threatening event where the church, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, can start to journey with you and that person. And don't write me off here. I think one of the coolest things about the church and one of the coolest things about a place like Scottsdale Bible Church is that we have the resources and the passion to offer, like all throughout the year, wonderful events to help you journey redemptively with lost people in your life. I mean, think about just what we did a few weeks ago with Barry Asmus and the economic outlook event that we ran. We had over a thousand people in this auditorium here hearing Barry, one of the top political economists in our world today, talk about what's going to be happening in 2009, and he gave people a lot of practical information about the economy, and then at the very end of it, he shared his faith with those that were listening. It was so cool. It was so non-threatening. And again, it's up to God how he wants to use that. So the pressure's off you, the pressure's off me, the pressure's off Barry. But I tell you, it was a no-fail event. I mean, very few people walked away going, I'm offended. I mean, most people walked away going, yeah, I guess that was a great event, and and I hear about Jesus, and some even came to faith in Christ. We have brought Lee Strobel in, brought Dave Drevecki in a few weeks ago. We did an outreach with the FBR open this week, in which we had professional golfers share their faith. We're bringing in Josh McDowell in May. Are you starting to get the picture here? I mean, we're talking like wonderful, no-fail, safe events for you to bring your lost friends that you're redemptively journeying with to church. And might I also add, without tooting my own horn, that I think the cringe factor is pretty low here at Scottsdale Bible on Sunday morning as well. Amen? I mean, I know we make y'all cringe sometimes with the goofy things that we do, But the reality is is that we preach the word relevantly and practically. And I find that there are many seekers that love to come to church and journey with you in the journey that you have with Christ. I mean, this is very New Testament, folks. Include them in your spiritual walk. Include them in church, or at the very least, at some type of an event. And again, this isn't magic. It's up to God whether he's going to call somebody to his kingdom or not. But then get this. You know what your next step is to do? Continue to journey with them. Continue to journey with them. In other words, continue the redemptive relationship, loving them, being patient with them, showing them what Christ is like, having coffee with them, taking them out for meals. And if after this burgeoning friendship, and if after a verbal witness, and if after an invite to church or an event, they still have not been found, you know what you do next? Journey with them some more. And you know what you do next? Journey with them even more. Are you starting to get the picture? You grab the broom... And you sweep the house until what? Until they're found. Until they're found by God. And what's so incredibly cool by this is that that might mean that with some people, you're going to journey with them till their dying breath or your dying breath. Amen? I mean, I got some people in my lives that are very, very stubborn. Do you? I have some people in my lives that are digging their heels in when it comes to spiritual things my best friend from third grade i've been sharing my faith with ever since i came to faith in 1982 and he still has dug his heels in when i got back to chagrin in 2001 to pastor fellowship bible church there first thing i did was look him up we went out jogging and he trying to treat me like his priest so we're out jogging he's telling me all his sins hoping i'd go like this or something like that you know And, and i'm like bill it doesn't work that way man I'm like, I can't forgive you your sins. Only Jesus can forgive you your sins. I mean, when are you going to turn to him? I know, I know. It's just so hard to believe and all this other stuff. And for six years, I ran with him. I invited them to church events. I mean, I journeyed with him in a redemptive way. When I left Cleveland a year and a half ago, I still hadn't come to faith. When I go back to Cleveland, I'll look him up. I will journey with him until the day I die. Amen? Yeah, hey, I'll journey with him. And you should too. Amen. You see, that's, the reality. that's what God is talking about here. Is that you and I just develop a few... key? Dream with me for a minute. Imagine what would happen if 5,000 people at Scottsdale Bible Church each had three or four redemptive relationships. Can you imagine what Scottsdale would be like in a few years? I mean, do the math. Even if God decides just to call 10% of them into the kingdom, it'd be like the day of Pentecost around here, right? I mean, we'd explode And by the way, we grow the right way. I mean, I know all of you get excited that Scottsdale Bible Church is filling up the pews and the parking lots, full and all that and stuff, and that's good. But guess what? If all we're doing is stealing sheep from Schrader's church, then guess what? That's not building the church. And I've asked Tom if I could say that because he and I have talked about this. We both feel so passionate about this, but that's how most churches grow today. They just steal sheep from another church. They like your church better than their church, or they move into another area like your church? I mean, studies are showing we're not really winning lost people. We're just trading saints. And the reality is, I don't want to grow that way. Do you? I mean, I don't think that's the mission that God has given us. He's asked us to reach the friends and family, those valuable lost coins that you have in your life, that I have in my life. And we're all in this together. And so we mount this search. And I want to kind of close with two thoughts here. First is that um. Here's what it's going to take, because some of you are asking, well, Jamie, this is kind of threatening stuff. Well, yeah, it is, but you know what? We're all in this together, and and, and here, if I can put it very simply to you, here's what it's really going to take, and that is going to take a decision on your part to not be a safe harbor Christian, but to be an open water Christian. You're going to like this illustration, to not be a safe harbor Christian, but to be open water. Think about those two nautical terms there. I mean, that first picture there of the safe harbor Kind of looks like the church sometimes, right? You get all these boats huddled together, and we're kind of in our, our safe little cloistered environment. You know, our Bible studies and our worship services and our serving environments and our Christian friends that we have and the Christian schools we go to and the Christian vacations that we go on, whether they're cruises or camps, and we're always moored in the, the safe harbor and security of being around other Christians. No storm can really get to us. We're, we're blocked, really, from most harm. I mean, somebody pointed out during the 1980s that, that American culture changed so radically because it was one of the first times in really almost 100 years where, where you could raise a kid from the time he or she was born all the way up to the time that he or she became adult in Christian everything. Do, do you know that? You can send them to a Christian preschool, go to a Christian church, Christian elementary school, Christian junior high, Christian senior high, Christian college, get a job at a Christian place, and then all of a sudden go on Christian cruises, Christian camps, retired or Christian retirement center, you can go your entire life and never have rubbed shoulders with a lost person in America today in our evangelical subculture. And yet you got to ask yourself, is that what Jesus meant when he said, be in the world but not of it? I don't think so. And so the reality is, is that we have many people today who are safe harbor Christians. And yet contrast this with open water Christians. I mean, moving out in the ocean of lost boats that have lost people in them. And by the way, battling the rough waters of rejection, braving the waves of questions that you might not know the answer to, resisting the waves of discouragement when people don't respond like you want them to. I mean, it's rough waters out there. There's a reason we like safe harbors. And yet the rough waters are where God wants us to be because it's in the rough waters that, by the way, Jesus journeyed in when he was on this earth that spiritual sparks fly, that things begin to happen, that God enters in and shows up, and by the way, does something only he can do. I mean, aren't you tired sometimes of your mundane life, you know, of this this life where, you know, it all seems to be going so well, and, you know, the economy's rough now, but it's going to swing back up again, and your 401k is going to grow, and you're going to go on your nice vacations, and hopefully raise pretty good kids, and you know, grow as a Christian and your understanding of finances and how to make your marriage work and all these, I mean, those are all good and fine things. The reality is you can search the New Testament and those things are going to come or go as God decides. The core of what God wants to do in your life is to bring a Holy Spirit power so powerful that it affects the relationships around you. The people you thought would never come to Christ, come to Christ. That the Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus would come to Christ. My friend Bill, for third grade, would come to Christ. And by the way, when that happens in your life, when God uses you that way, and this is my last thought for you this morning, what happens is, and this is our third point, is that you get to unite with heaven's joy when one person is found in a way that will blow you out of the water. He'll blow you out of the water. In fact, look at how Jesus ends this parable to us in Luke 15. He says, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Now don't miss this, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Then Jesus says, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And as we learned last week, Matthew adds the idea that there's more joy in these angels' hearts over anything that happens here on earth. And so it just lights on to that, folks. Some of you are wondering, why don't I have more joy in my life? Why don't I have more peace and purpose? Why don't these springs of living water flow out of me? Could it be because you're in the safe harbor? Could it be because you haven't joined God's rescue efforts and just doing some of the simple things that he calls you to, like developing a redemptive relationship, sharing a verbal witness, journeying with somebody in a spiritual way who doesn't know Christ yet, and staying in the ring over the long haul? Because I tell you, if you do that, what's so cool is that God enters into that process and he really does bring joy. He really does bring fruit and it makes it all worth it. I want to close by telling you one last story. It's a true story and um, it's one that hopefully will inspire you in all of this. Uh, Though over the last 35 minutes I've sounded like I'm Mr. Evangelist, i got to tell you right now I'm not. Uh, There's 22 different spiritual gifts mentioned in the Bible. One of them is evangelism and I don't have it. i just got to tell you that right now. It's really true. My spiritual gifts are in teaching and in leadership. And so I'm one of these guys that if God uses me maybe once a year, twice a year to lead somebody to Christ, I'm doing pretty good that year. I'm batting kind of 330. And and yet the reality is is I know that all of us, however, are in this together and that I do need to share my faith and enter into this redemptive process, and so I do. And I'll never forget about 10 years ago this year, 1999, when I first went into the senior pastor. I went to a church that, that just had very low redemptive potential, if you all know what I mean. This kind of church was very stuck in their ways. They were declining in attendance. They'd gotten very ingrown, and they were really struggling. So we spent about the first six months retooling this church, helping them reach up to their redemptive potential by preaching sermons like these and getting people kind of out of their attitudes when it came to how they viewed lost people. And, and, And we had this one Sunday in August where we were kind of, remember the little bring a friend Sundays? We were going to kind of, you know, reach out to some lost people through our church service. And I'll never forget sitting there in August in my office back at wortley baptist church in london ontario right before the service and i just prayed to god i said oh god i said if you would use us if you would use this small hurting church to reach lost people i'll never ask anything more you ever prayed prayers like that i'll be content that's all i want that day um, i found out that there was a guy named jim that came kicking and screaming to church you ever brought somebody like that he was brought by one of his aunts who knew we were having a bring a friend Sunday. And Jim, who hadn't been to church in years, said, you know, i got to please my aunt and, and just was in a foul mood coming into church that day, yelling at the kids, all this other stuff. And, and so he got to church that day, and he got his kids into the nursery and was kind of impressed that we had a nursery and that we were going to at least take care of his kids. And he sat there next to his wife, Rhonda, in the church service. And uh, that day, I was preaching, ironically, out of Luke, uh, I'm sorry, to Matthew chapter 11 on Matthew, the tax collector. Remember Matthew's call when Jesus called him to come the kingdom? My simple point was, is that Jesus is in the business of calling the, the worst of sinners, those who, who, who never thought they could become a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. And all I know is that for some reason that day, what happened in Jim's heart and mind as he tells a story, is that he realized that if Jesus could call a guy like Matthew, then maybe he could call a guy like me. You see all his life he had thought he what wasn't good enough to be a christian that's how most lost people think they look at you and me and they see a little bit more shiny lives and they kind of say well i can't be like them because they can't on their own and so they just kind of give up that's the way he thought and yet that day what he heard was is that only god can change your life only god can change a matthew and he thought maybe god can change me and he accepted christ i didn't know what that day i thought the whole day was a wash Because, you know, I give a gospel invitation and nobody responded. That's a real bummer, by the way, when things like that happen for a pastor. I hope that doesn't happen here, but I did it anyways. And, like, nobody responded. And then a month later, we had our annual church picnic. And I was there, and I noticed this one guy who just didn't fit in. You ever notice people like that? He was muscular, bald, and had tattoos. And I thought, he doesn't look like he belongs here. I wonder if he knows where he's at. And so I went up and I started talking to him. And you know what he said to me? My name is Jim. And he said, I just got to tell you, I came to your church about a month ago and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I almost started bawling right on the spot. I just said, God, you used us. You used us to reach one person. Over the next two years, God used us to reach dozens. I mean dozens. We counted about 50 or 60, the small little church for Christ. We saw baptism after baptism as a church started to live up to her redemptive potential. Here's the reality, Scottsdale Bible Church is a church that when I was brought on here that was said by Tim Kimmel, he said, I don't think we've quite reached our redemptive potential yet. He he wasn't saying that as a criticism, he was saying that as a vision, that maybe God has a lot more planned for us when it comes to having an impact in Scottsdale and the world. And folks, I believe that. And yet I believe it all hinges on lamps and brooms and diligent searches. It all hinges on us following God in the way that he's called us to follow. And as we do that, I can't wait to see what he's going to do. Why don't you bow with me and pray? Father, I thank you that uh, in your word, you clearly, you clearly have outlined for us that uh, your plan from Matthew 28 to Acts chapter 1 to the end of Revelation is to bring people into right relationship with you, fallen people who have no hope of eternal life. And the Lord, as we've learned today, you desire to use us. And Father, I know how some of us think here today. We're we're pretty hesitant on this. We might not have the gift of evangelism. We feel very awkward. We might not even be all that relational. Lord, the bottom line is, is that we do care about lost ones in our lives. We do. We can't deny that. We love them, and they love us, and we would love to see them find the hope that we have, whether it's a a straying child or a friend or a coworker, or a neighbor a family member and so father i pray that as we dig deep and find that heart that really does care for those that are lost in our lives that god you would just help us to to begin a redemptive journey or to continue a redemptive journey help us not to be afraid to share what we know about jesus with those around us in our own way and would you use that help us lord to trust our church and each other that though we might be very different, that you're inhabiting this place and that you use us in reaching those around us. And Lord, more than anything, help us to be men and women who persevere, who journey with those and never give up, because you don't give up, waiting patiently for them to come to a knowledge of Christ and for your call to sink in in their lives. Father, we go to the communion table now and we thank you for this table. It's a powerful reminder. It's a powerful time of worship, letting us know who you are and what you've done in our lives through Jesus and his death on a cross for our sins. So receive this act of worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.